Hey guys, so this is an amazing episode with Ottoman professor and historian Nabil Al-Tikriti. We first talk about an incredible slave system that both the Abbasids and the Ottomans had. We discuss the notable rulers of the Ottoman Empire and a breakdown of Islamic history throughout the Ottoman Empire and the formulation of different Islamic schools and the lead up that that had to the modern day Sunni Shia relations in the modern day Muslim world. If you want to get a better understanding of our history as Muslims and how it shapes the world we live in today, then this episode is for you. Dr. Nabila Tikriti, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in is what you're—you're you're a professor and a historian on the Ottoman Empire, uh, and a lot of people don't even know the history of the Ottoman Empire, especially even when uh, the Ottoman Empire reigned over the world. So, so can you give us a brief timeline of of the Ottoman Empire? Sure. A quick and dirty version would be that they're conventionally dated back to 1299, which is in a sense a random year to start. But uh, at any rate, be between around 1299 and 1324, they had their first ruler, and his name was Osman Ghazi. And they say that uh, they named the empire after Osman Ghazi, which works in Turkish, doesn't really work in English. Like, how did Osman become Ottoman? But just let that slide. Um, from 1299 or around that time until 1453, they were gaining in power slowly. Um, so every ruler expanded their territory. Uh, and then there was an interregnum at the beginning of the, of the uh, 15th century when Timur absolutely destroyed them and split them up into smaller, uh, smaller uh, dynasties. Then they re reunified after a civil war, and then in 1453, Mehmet the Conqueror managed to conquer Constantinople, which is what we today know of as Istanbul. That was, in a sense, the moment that they arrived as a major regional empire. After that, they grew again under Selim the Grim, as they usually refer to him, and that's when they conquered Egypt, Syria, and much of the Arab world. And they kept on growing through Suleiman, the one they call the Magnificent, and that takes us to the mid-16th century, and that's usually considered their peak. Now, is that really accurate? No, there's a lot of criticism of that idea that it was their peak, because they kept growing. They kept growing uh, into the 17th century, like the early 17th century, they kept getting larger, and then it stabilized. And from the, the early 17th century to pretty much the end of the 18th century, they were very stable, they were no longer really expanding or even trying to expand. They were just trying to hold on to what they had. And at their peak, which ran from roughly the early 17th century uh, until the late uh, 18th century when they started to unravel, uh, they controlled roughly three quarters of the Mediterranean coastline and 20% of what we today think of as Europe because they controlled the entire Balkans. And uh, in the 19th century, which is sort of the late Ottoman period, so the Ottoman history is usually divided between uh, the classical age, which is the story of their rise until the uh, 17th or 18th century, and then uh, the late Ottoman period, which is pretty much from the uh, 17th, 18th century until the end. And the end, uh, definitive end, is pretty much 1923. World War One. Yeah, after World War One, after their defeats in World War One, and and occupation by the British and the French in Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, there rose this nationalist movement under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and in 1923 they successfully created the modern Republic of Turkey. And all the other Arab states also 
emerged from that process as well under under either British or French domination. So there's a general narrative that the Ottoman Empire was basically just a continuation of the Abbasid Empire. And many times, at least in the Islamic narratives, right, they're just all under the Islamic Empire, this uh, thousand-year reign overall. Uh, What would you say to that? Uh, The Abbasids were originally Arab, that's right, although they intermarried so much that they weren't really recognizably Arab by their end. Uh, But it would be, from from an Islam vis-a-vis the rest of the world perspective, then yes, you can see it as consistent with the Abbasid legacy. And there are uh, Ottoman scholars, like historians, who refer to it as the last great Islamic dynasty, the last great Islamic empire, and in that sense there is a continuity. But if you look at it from within uh, Islamic history, in other words, if you get into the weeds a bit, it's really quite different than the Abbasid. And the main reason for that, I would argue, is is the Mongol effect. So the Mongols invaded from the east in the early 13th century, and that continued throughout, or that legacy completely broke the Islamic world into a couple of major areas. So what I call, or what I think of as the uh, Arabocentric Islamic world, which is pretty much the Arab world, and what you might think of as the Turco-Persian Islamic world, which is uh, today Turkey, Iran, extending into Central Asia and Afghanistan. And they have, in this sort of division of the Islamic world that emerges after the Mongol invasions, you have kind of two views of the Mongols. The the Arab view being that it was the end of the world, it was the apocalypse, there's nothing good that came out of this at all, uh, and they're just evil. And then their Turco-Persian view, which I I think of more as uh, you need to break some eggs to make an omelet, which is to say it was really violent, but something really good emerged afterwards. So there is this divide within the Islamic world. What was the good that came out? Well, for one thing, the largest empire that ever existed in human history, so that's good, I guess. Um, And there was something that's referred to as Pax Mongolica, which is to say in the 14th century, you could travel from Eastern Europe to China uh, on a single visa, if you will, and be completely secure. Like that was true for a period, um, not a very long period, but about about a century, mid-13th, mid-14th century. And uh, within Islamic history, you can also argue that after the Mongol eruption, as some call it, uh, you have the rise of Sufi orders, which can be seen as positive. Um, Depends on what you think of Sufi orders, I suppose. What are Sufi orders? Like mystical orders. So the Mevlevis, the the Sohrovardiya, uh, all these Sufi orders, which is Islamic mysticism. And that really accelerates after the Mongol invasions. So they, they become more powerful. So is the Mehlevis uh, a group of people, for example? So yeah. the Mehlevis are named after Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. Oh, a Rumi. Yeah, so Mevlana. So in, in Arabic, Maulana becomes Maulawi in a, in a sort of adjectival sense. So a Maulawi is someone who follows the Maulana, and that became Turkified in pronunciation to Mevlana. So they are the Mevlana order. So a bu- uh, basically a whole bunch of ideologies rose that, that really shaped and revolutionized the way that Muslims and scholars viewed philosophy and history and science and so on. Absolutely. It has effects on kalam or theology and felsifa or philosophy. Uh, there, is a, there is a clear break in the mid-13th century. So in that lev- at that level... Uh, The Ottomans are a product of the post-Mongol reality, and that makes them very, very different than the Abbasids, uh, intellectually, philosophically, 
theologically, in every sense, very different. They're not Arabocentric, for example. The Abbasids were quite Arabocentric. A new reality arose, and there was a lot of positive that came out of that, because in breaking the old order, it led to an era of experimentation, is how it's usually thought of. So experimentation philosophically experimentation theologically, um, experimentation with the Sufi orders and mysticism. And in effect, it's because of all that violence and conflict and dislocation that everybody's reevaluating everything. And the Mongols left their contributions as well. They're not entirely a negative part of this story. So for example, they, they, they left behind the Ilkhanid Empire, in, in mostly Iran, and the Ilkhanid Empire is sort of a prelude to the Shi'i Iran that emerges later under the Safavids, and, and some of that is a legacy of the Ilkhanids who themselves were Mongols. So the story of the Ilkhanids is that they, they were originally Mongols, and then over about a 50-year period they converted to Islam, uh, and that wasn't like this. It wasn't immediate. It was one ruler converted. They overthrew that ruler because they didn't agree with the conversion. Uh, then there was another uh, Mongol ruler who did not convert, and then there was a ruler who converted, and after that ruler, all of the rulers were Muslims in the Ilkhanid Empire. Now what's going on in society underneath them is a lot of experimentation, a lot of positive chaos in a way. And that positive chaos leads to all the, the uh, changes in philosophy, theology, politics that the Ottomans emerge out of. Now, yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, it's just that the Ottomans don't immediately emerge. So 1299 is the date that they put out there as the beginnings of the dynasty, which would be in the middle of this, I suppose. But just to, to recall, the, the Ilkhanids were all powerful in the beginning of that story. It's only in 1334 or 5, I forget which it is, that the Ilkhanids completely unravel because their last uh, strong ruler, Abu Sa'id, dies. And then in the course of their unraveling, uh, you get all these microstates, what they call in Turkish beyliks. And a beylik is where a bey rules, and a bey is sort of in English like a lord. So there's all these small states, microstates, and those beyliks uh, consolidated under the Ottomans, uh, violently or otherwise, in, as the Ottomans grew. So the Ottomans basically started swallowing them up one by one from the mid-14th century to the mid-15th century, and then the Ottomans became all-powerful. Mm. And what was the government style? Was it completely different than the Abbasids? It was different in some ways. So the Abbasids had uh, a slave bodyguard, you know, the Mamluk, the famous Mamluk bodyguard. Now, Mamluk means in Arabic literally the owned person, right? The person who is owned. But the term Mamluk is specific to military slavery, and military slavery is very different than the plantation slavery that we know of in the U.S. The military slaves, the Mamluks, would often run the entire empire. So that's the model under the Mamluk Empire, which is another famous empire based in Cairo at this same time. In the Ottoman case, the royal family did, but they used Mamluks or what you might think of as Mamluks, they're, they're the Janissaries. And the Janissaries, and, and this is an important part of the Ottoman society and their history, the Janissaries came into the system through what is called the Dev Shirmay. 
And the Devshir May in Turkish literally means the gathering together. And, and you can think of it in a way as a prelude to modern conscriptions or modern drafts, like military drafts. And what they did is that they took roughly 20% of the males under their rule in the Balkans. So we're talking ethnic Serbs, ethnic Bulgarians, Croats, Albanians at first, and what later became Bosniaks as well, were all part of this Devshirme, and they would come into the Ottoman system as pubescent teenagers, effectively, and they would, they would all be Christian. At first, you could not be Muslim and enter this system, because you were serving the Muslim dynasty, and you converted to Islam. That was part of the process, is that upon graduation, you would convert to Islam and you would not be freed. Now, this is one of the quirks of the Ottoman system. You would still be a slave, even though you were a Muslim, which is legally suspect, is, is actually the way to think of it. And, um, but that's the system they had. And these Devshir May graduates would become either military or bureaucratic, effectively. So if they, were, if they had talent with uh, numbers, they might go into the treasury. If they had talent with writing and calligraphy and grammar, they might go into the, the chancery. Um, if they had talent with, well, busting heads, they went into the military. But on the whole, they were not recruiting from amongst the Balkan elite. They were recruiting from the Balkan peasantry and turning them into elites. So, so it would be more like in the, in the American context, if some entity were recruiting out of the countryside, out of the, out of the poor, and then turning them into the new elite would be, would be a closer parallel. And then, I mean, you say by force, there's a mixed record there. Some parents out in Balkan villages would be like, here, take my son, please, because that son could be someday, you know, the general or the, the minister or the grand vizier, which is the equivalent of a prime minister in the modern era. And so it's, it's, a, it's a ticket for advancement. So some parents were like, yeah, here, take my kid, please, uh, because they might become all-powerful someday. And then there's counter stories to that narrative where they say, no, don't take my kid because he'll become a Muslim and I don't want that, you know, because their parents are Greek, Bulgarian, what have you. So it's, it's a mixed record. Nobody's, you can't point to any uh, extreme in that comparison because nobody's sure, and it's anecdotal in any case, and nobody took polls. Um, so in today's world, the Ottoman historians and the, the, the Turkish view, if you will, is that it was mostly a positive. Hmm. The Bulgarian view, the Greek view, the Serbian view is that they stole our children. Either way, they built a huge military, um, and they were able to just bulldoze the European enemies well into the 17th century when it starts to turn. Now, what that meant over time, in other words, over a couple of hundred years, is the Ottomans created a new Ottoman elite of the descendants of these originally slaves. And those Ottoman elites who were then Muslim, so these are the Muslim descendants of their non-Muslim ancestors, went on to become the elites of the Ottoman Empire through its more stable period, the 17th, 18th, into the 19th century. And in the 19th century, as the, as the empire is, is receding and starting to unravel, those were Muslim populations in the Balkans. And they, they had become, through conversion, 
they went from being, you know, two or three percent of the population up to maybe 30, 40 percent of the population. And then in the 19th century, as these homogenous nation states evolved, you know, what we today um, know of as Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Croatia, as all of those states emerged, they would kick out the Muslims and they would kick out basically those loyal to the Ottoman Empire, especially the Muslims. And they became the refugees who poured into Anatolia in the 19th century and in effect are the ancestors of, of much of today's Turkey. Why, why did they even do that? What was the methodology behind it? I think their idea was to create a, an Islamic elite or a, a loyal Ottoman. Uh, I don't know how important to make religion in this because the more important thing is that they're loyal Ottoman servants, if you will. And, and it is often compared to the U.S. melting pot idea. And, and the comparison's not totally off because the Ottoman Empire as a melting pot would take, in effect, anyone that wanted to join the team. So uh, in terms of this conscription, it's the Balkan peasantry. And, and they would go into the state and they would be turned into the Janissaries or the bureaucrats. But at the same time, uh, if you were a European who wanted to join the Ottomans, that you would be known as a renegade. And there was this whole phenomenon of renegades who joined the Ottoman team, if you will, because they liked the Ottomans. So there are prominent examples of that. So there's a prominent ethnic Hungarian who became the first Ottoman publisher, Mutafetika. Uh, and there's there's cases of you know Germans, English, French doesn't matter. They they like the Ottomans and they became Ottomans. So that's the renegade phenomenon, and they're known as renegades. What about Asia and Africa? What's their relation to? And on the African side, there's also a a form of African slavery, but it's not plantation slavery, and it's not very large scale. It's also military slavery, and the Ottomans didn't rule over that many. Uh, sub-Saharan Africans at all. I mean, the only time they really had any control over such populations was when they ruled Sudan uh, and then into the Horn of Africa in the uh, 17th, 16th and 17th centuries. And at that time, they didn't enslave any of them that I'm aware of, except for the palace guards. And the palace guards, who were uh, African, in effect, would be turned into uh, what's the? There's a term for when you when you when you lose your uh, personal parts and your. It's I'm blanking on it at the moment. Castration. Yeah, castration, and then they would be turned into something. I'm forgetting the term, but um, <laughs> they would be the ones in charge of guarding the harem, and they were also slaves, but there aren't that many of them. I mean, you can you can point to maybe maybe a hundred at any given time. So it's not a huge phenomenon, but it's there. Interesting. Is there anything on the Asian side that happens? On the on the Asian side, if you mean East Asia, not much. There's not much contact with East Asia, but there is contact with South Asia, Central Asia, Iran and Afghanistan for sure. And and similarly, anyone who wants to join the Ottoman team, if you will, or the Ottoman side was was welcome with open arms. And that was true right up to the very end. So, you know, into the early 20th century, if you if you didn't like uh, the expansion of the Russian Empire, and you were a Central Asian, you could basically migrate to the Ottoman Empire if you can figure out how to get there, and they would welcome you and settle you and set you up and, 
and everything would be fine afterwards, theoretically. And that's also the ancestors of today's uh, Turks. Huh. So the Ottoman Empire has no history of hatred towards immigrants or people of other cultural backgrounds? Uh, not that I can point to. They were very cosmopolitan. They were accepting of diversity. They, they saw diversity as strength. And this, again, is why that comparison to the American melting pot sometimes works. They, they like diversity. Um, there's definitely stresses with uh, their enemies. So who were their big enemies? Well, in the earlier part of their history, their biggest enemy was actually Safavid Shiite Iran. Um, and then it switched to being the Habsburgs, you know, in, in Austria and across the Balkan frontier. And then it became the Russians. Uh, so the Russians were the big enemy from uh, the early 18th century to the very end of the empire in 1923. The Russians were the big enemy. How'd they deal with their enemies? What was the Ottoman Empire's battle strategy like? Well, it's these Janissaries. These Janissaries were the, um, the crack infantry of the 16th and into the 17th century, actually 15th to 17th century. They were the best military in Europe. In fact, probably the best military in the world. Now, what do I mean by the best military? It's not so much a question of numbers. It's more a question of things like tactics and artillery. They had the most advanced artillery into the early 17th century. Maybe a bit earlier, they lost their edge, but you know, they, they, were, they were amongst the leading technology um, you know, pioneers in artillery until at some point in the 17th century, the Europeans kind of passed them up. And uh, so they were, they were advanced technologically, logistically, uh, and in terms of scale, they also were a huge military at their peak because of the system of the Dev Shirmay of conscription which precedes the European conscription. So the, the earliest European conscription I've ever heard of, mind you, I might be missing a beat or something, but uh, was Prussia. And Prussia isn't a story until the 18th century. So the Ottomans are conscripting, if you will, in the late 15th century. And the Prussians, your proto-Germans, they don't do it till the 18th century. Okay, so, so they just completely demolished and went through Europe. And European, I, I think why they stopped was was of weather, correct? They just couldn't handle the cold. Well, the, the the theory as to why they didn't expand further that I'm personally most comfortable with is the idea that they basically reached the limits of what they could do with their military logistics, or they they just got uh, so big <laughs> that going any further would have meant that they had to completely change the way they did it because the the way they did it in the early modern period is they would campaign from roughly spring to fall. So they would, they would sort of call the troops together. Uh, with the, so they'd send letters all over the empire. They'd say, be at this field um, on you know April 15th or something. And then they would all assemble, and then they would start marching in the direction that they were conquering. Well, that's all fine and dandy if you only need to go up to, let's say, four or 500 miles. But when you need to go eight or 900 miles, it becomes a real issue. Like you can't get there and get back in one campaign season. So that's one theory as to why they didn't go even further while they were on top of the world militarily. And the period that they were on top of the world militarily runs from roughly the mid 15th century to the, to the mid 17th century. There's a 200 year period there. And what I always find um, really 
fascinating and problematic is how in Western civilization textbooks that, that are being sold at college campuses across the USA, the Ottomans tend to get about uh, three or four paragraphs in the Renaissance chapter where all they say is uh, something like, Suleiman the Magnificent was a notable ruler, and that's about it. And, and the reality is, for a couple of hundred years there, the Ottomans completely dominated European politics, European fears, European um, changes in terms of religion and philosophy. The Ottomans were the ones driving the driving the narrative, and then and then it shifts again with the emergence of the Enlightenment era in the in the 18th century. It starts to change, but for for what what we know of as the Renaissance and the Reformation and the Scientific Revolution, those are the chapter titles always, like in every Western Civ textbook. Those three chapters should be all about the Ottomans, and they never are. The Ottomans are a bit player in those three chapters, and they shouldn't be. There's one, there's one book that just came out that I'm, I'm really quite happy about on the whole, maybe not in every single way, and it's by Mark Baer, a colleague of mine who used to be in graduate school with me. The main contribution of this book, so it's called The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs, so mm. that's the correct name. It just came out about four or five months ago, and he's trying to drive this reinterpretation of European history to include the Ottomans. That's his primary agenda, and I think the book is very uh, successful in doing that, and, uh, and it's, it's attracting attention. So hopefully in the next generation of Western Civ textbooks, they'll, they'll include the Ottomans, but it hasn't happened yet. Are there any notable rulers of the Ottoman Empire? Well, the, there's the ones that everybody notices and pays attention to. So uh, to run through that list, it's, it's Osman Ghazi, the first guy. And, and there isn't much that we know about him, so it's all grasping at straws. And then you can fast forward to Mehmet the Conqueror, the guy who conquered Constantinople. And, and he was a very cosmopolitan figure. He, he was a Renaissance ruler in the sense that he knew Greek and he knew Arabic, and he knew Turkish and Persian. Um, and he was, he was educated in all these languages and all of these histories and philosophy, theology. He was a very well-educated cosmopolitan ruler. So um, his story is he got the best court education you could possibly have. Um, his father was Murad II. Uh, the legacy of his father was restoring the, the, the empire before Timur ripped it apart. Uh, and, and Murad II stepped down when uh, Mehmet the Conqueror was only 12 years old. And he basically said, uh, here's the keys to the, to the empire. And he's a 12-year-old kid. So this is well before 1453. This is like 1444. So it's, it's when... Uh, Mehmet's only 12, and because he's only 12, he's relying on the cabinet to run everything. Well, it doesn't work very well. You know, this goes wrong, that goes wrong. There's a crisis at the frontier. So the cabinet, um, or the divan, they called Murad II out of retirement. They said, we need you to come back. There's a crisis. So he came back, and he ruled from, he ruled again from 1444 to his death in 1452. Well, when Murad II died, um, at that point, Mehmed the Conqueror has to come, you know, has to come to power. 
And he does. But this time he's 18 years old and he's not happy. He's really angry with the Devon. So in because of what they did to what him. They, what they did to him when he was 12. I'm sure it was a little embarrassing. I'm sure it was embarrassing. And, and he was clearly a strong-willed ruler. There's no doubt about that. So his first goal was, I'm going to take Constantinople, which had been a goal, a political goal of Muslim dynasties going all the way back to the, to the 8th century, really. Because it was a prophecy by the Prophet, peace be upon him, that there was going to come a time where a good ruler would finally take open Constantinople. And that, that hadith might or might not be real, but yeah, there is that hadith floating out there. I don't yeah. know if Muhammad really said it, but it's out there. And, and it is a very well-known hadith, and, uh, and, and that hadith was definitely floating around in the 15th century. So Mehmet's like, I'm going to be that guy. So, um, so he made it his agenda to conquer Constantinople, and um, he pulled it off. Now, that's a whole long story in itself, you know, the conquest of Constantinople, because there's this amazing story of they were blocked off from the Golden Horn by a chain, so they couldn't put ships into the Golden Horn, which is this, this gulf uh, around the old city of Istanbul. Can you pull up a, a geographically what it looks like? Because it is, it is pretty interesting. So instead, he put ships on rollers, and they pushed the ships up over a hill, and they came down into um, the, the, the gulf, the, the Golden Horn. Over and they, land, right? Over land. So they went up a hill and down a hill on rollers and then floated the boats behind that chain, and that meant that the defenders of old Constantinople had to defend uh, what on that map is the northern side of the of the city and they didn't have to defend it as long as that chain was preventing ships from coming in and and there's actually plenty more to that story there's uh, but but he pulled it off so what is the first thing he did after he pulled it off he executed for treason the guys who he didn't like who had um, you know, sort of pushed him out of power when he was 12. Well, they were also trying to undermine his siege of Constantinople while he was out at war. They were saying like, oh, look at this man. He's using our weapons, our, our men, our resources to, to go out and fight a battle that at that time they deemed as impossible, right? Like Constantinople was deemed as an impossible city to take over. So they were trying to use that as a political game against him. The way I think of it is that... Um, there was, in effect, a peace camp, and the peace camp were the members of the Divan who did not want to attack the Byzantines. They wanted to maintain the stability that they had long had with the Byzantines, and, and that goes back, um, at that point, several decades and several generations, because the Byzantines had shrunk so that they were only in control of Constantinople. They were a city-state by that point. And the Ottomans completely surrounded them. And several of the members of the Divan were very tight with the, with the Byzantines, like politically and even personally tight with them. So they, they, were, they didn't see them as enemies, and they didn't see any reason to, to conquer this town. They just wanted to maintain the status quo well into the future. You could think of them as a peace camp. You could think of them as a pro-Byzantine camp. You can think of them even as... as you might even think of them as those who liked the Greeks, you know, um, and, and they might have, 
I'm not certain about this, but one or two of those key figures might have even been of Greek descent themselves and personally knew the Byzantines. Uh, so this this arrow right here is where he went over land, right? That's right. They cut down the trees and they had to at least cut down a ship's width apart of forestry. And they used the logs of the trees that they just cut down to roll the ships onto them for miles on end. That's insane. It's militarily quite impressive. Well, and there's also a story of like massive cannon that are attacking the the wall on the left there. Um, he had an inventor create the world's largest cannon at that time, right? Cannon. Up to that time, right? I think that's the uh, the Hungarian cannon uh, engineer. I think, if I if I'm remembering it correctly, so there was this this this, and I think his name was Orban actually, but I, I, I I'm not sure. Uh, this individual who was Hungarian worked for the Ottomans. He was in effect a consultant um, and he created the largest cannon ever created up to that point and they used it in the siege. And that was a big difference maker, right? Yeah, it just <laughs> totally demolished the wall and and the defenders kept having to rebuild it like instantaneously, like, you know, stack while while defending it. And, and they were able to do it. It's It's... You have to give them a lot of credit. It was heroic. There were seven or 8,000 defenders who were mostly what we would today think of as ethnic Greeks, but supplemented by some Italians as well who helped. And uh, there were against these seven or 8,000 defenders, most of them on that wall, were something like 120,000 Ottoman, um, Ottoman soldiers, mostly Janissaries, but not entirely. I think this siege went on for three or four weeks. Yeah, it was a it was a long siege, and if if they hadn't have gotten the ships over that hill, they might not have pulled it off. They might have had to give up, and and then I don't know that Mehmed would have lasted much longer if that had been the outcome. Yeah. So what else about him? Well, more about him. Um, well, among other things, he he had his infant brother strangled upon coming to the throne, and this was consistent also with Ottoman royal uh, succession, which is to say it's very much like Game of Thrones in a way, in that every time an Ottoman sultan came to the throne, they had all of their brothers killed. And this was, a, um, in effect, a law, like a law that's attributed to Mehmed the Conqueror, actually. Uh, whether it really dates back to that is a little bit under debate, but I've come to think that it's likely that it went all the way back to Mehmed the Conqueror. It's, it's attributed to him. And the idea there is that you must kill all your brothers in order to eliminate rival claims to the throne. And the theory there, the political theory, if you will, is that under the Mongols, so this is a post-Mongol development, under the Mongols, every member of the royal family gets a piece of the empire. And the old way to do that, the Mongol way, as well as the early Safavid way, as well as the Akoyunlu and the Karakoyunlu and all these other post-Mongol dynasties, was uh, there'd be sort of a, a, of a, a ranking of the royal family. So there'd be the overall sultan, and then there'd be like guy number two, guy number three, guy number four. And each one of them would rule a major city and a region of the empire. So guy... So if, if the sultan is in, let's say, Samarkand, the guy number two, which is often his son, but it could be his brother, 
is ruling Bukhara. Now, that, that's a formula for disaster because every time the sultan dies, there's almost inevitably a civil war to replace the sultan. So every generation, there's another civil war. That's destabilizing. And the Ottomans themselves had a civil war like that at the turn of the 15th century after Timur defeated Bayezid I. So the Ottoman solution to this was to keep sovereignty in a single hierarchical hand. And that single hierarchical hand was whoever would win the succession struggle immediately had to execute all of their brothers and their brother's male children. Wow. Now, this wasn't throughout the entire Ottoman history. Like, this, this tradition is clearly there from Mehmet the Conqueror all the way until, uh, I think, the 1620s is when they start to change this because it became problematic. Uh, it especially became problematic when, I think it's Sultan Ahmed, had 19 of his brothers uh, strangled and there's this story of like these coffins coming out of the palace, including like, you know, infant, infant coffins. And, and the, the population was, was really angry. Like, you know, what's this about? I mean, could you imagine if out of Buckingham Palace, <laughs> there's, there, there would be all these coffins of the descendants of Queen Elizabeth after Prince Charles comes to power and he gets rid of all the other lines. It, it wouldn't play well, you know. Yeah. So they changed the tradition, and, and, it's, and it's no accident that they changed that tradition at the same time that the bureaucracy was becoming more powerful and the, the, the person of the sultan in the palace was becoming less, less powerful, mm. which in a sense is a sign of modernity. It's the rise of the modern state. So as the modern state is, is rising through the bureaucracy and the the palace and the and the the charismatic sultan is becoming less important well then the stakes are lower and then you can stop killing all your brothers because you don't matter that much yeah and that's when they went to what you might think of as the saudi model which is to say it's not the um son of the sultan that takes over next and kills all his brothers instead it's uh, it goes from the sultan to his next oldest brother to the next oldest brother to the next oldest brother. Nobody gets killed. And then when they run out of brothers, it goes to the next generation and the cycle continues. Right. What other significant Ottoman Empire figures are there? Oh, well, if we're counting Notable. the important rulers. Um, so after Mehmet the Conqueror, the next big one is Selim the Grim. And his big contribution was uh, conquering Egypt and Syria. So ending the Mamluk uh, empire. The next one after that that's really important is Suleiman the Magnificent for every reason. He's usually the only one you read about in a Western Civ text. Why is he named Suleiman the Magnificent? That's quite a name. Well, that's and that's a story too. Uh, he's known as Suleiman the Magnificent in Europe, but he's known as Kanuni Suleiman in the Islamic world. And Kanuni means the, the guy who gave us Kanun, and Kanun is, the, is law, right? It's it's secular dynastic law, not um, Sharia. So, so back to why he's known as the Magnificent in Europe. He's known as the Magnificent in Europe because he was by far the, the biggest show in town throughout Europe in the mid-16th century. There's no doubt about it. Nobody compares to him. 
What do you mean by show and tell? Like he used to come in with his posse and have a whole bunch of gold and stuff with him, or what? Well, among other things, he had this um, this famous crown, which has disappeared. I maybe it'll surface someday. But this crown was um, was meant to rival the papal crown, and it literally was uh, full of diamonds and and all kinds of finery. So you, you may have noticed when Queen Elizabeth died, there was some criticism about the actual crown, like this jewel came from here and this jewel came from there and things like that. Well, that crown that Queen Elizabeth had was nothing compared to that. And there it is. You found it, um, which I think looks kind of funny. But, um, but that crown was said to be the most valuable crown ever seen up to that time. And, and it's lost. Nobody really knows where it went. But um, but if you find that you're you're incredibly wealthy if you can find that at some garage sale or something. That's a good m- adventure movie plot right, right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after Suleiman, there's some others that matter. Um, there's Mehmet the Fourth, who c- tried to revive the charismatic Sultan and had a campaign against Iran and had an anti-smoking campaign. If you were caught smoking, there was a period under Mehmed IV where you could be uh, executed for it, for smoking, (laughs) which I think is great. (laughs) Or not great, hilarious. Um, And then after him, the next big one is probably Selim III, who is the first one who tried to uh, do modernizing reforms at the end of the 18th century. So he's, he's... He's at the same time as Napoleon, and Selim III is trying to to break the classical structures and bring the Ottomans, or or make it so that the Ottomans can catch up to the Europeans who by that time were ahead of them. And then after Selim III, the big one is probably Abdulhamid II, who uh, ruled at the very end, or towards the very end. He was in power from 1876 to 1908. Is there anything interesting about him, or he's just... Oh, there's plenty of things interesting about him. Yeah, he's he's blamed for... He's blamed in a negative sense for setting up the groundwork for what became the Armenian Genocide, uh, and that mm. includes a lot of killings in the 1890s, which was while he was in power. On, on the more positive side, you could say that he was also a modernizing sultan, but using Islamic politics to promote his uh, vision of, of Ottoman sovereignty. So, so he's in a way seen by Erdogan, you know, today's Turkish president, as a, as, a, as a good model for how Erdogan wants to be president of Turkey. So if you, if you go to today's Istanbul, for example, and you go into the metro uh, at one of the prime metro stops at Yenikapa, there's in effect, a glorification of 19th century futurism. So one example is there's this tile in, a, in that metro stop. At, at, um, which one is it? It's Yen... Well, anyway, I'm, I'll, it'll come to Can me. Can you check Audacity? At that metro stop, they have all this tile work where they, where they show you um, a 19th century image of a futuristic bridge over the Bosphorus. Now they've got three bridges over the Bosphorus today, but in that metro, what they're trying to show you is that back in the 19th century, uh, Abdulhamid II wanted to build that bridge, just they weren't able to do it um, technologically yet. Hmm. So anyway, he's, he's seen as a model for Erdogan in a funny sort of way. Very cool.
So what did Ottoman identity look like within the society? So uh, in terms of Ottoman identity, in terms of Ottoman identity, uh, if you were a non-Muslim, then what emerged by the later period was what they called the millet system. And millet is from the Arabic word milla, which means uh, nation. So the, the nation of X, Y, and Z. These millets were defined by religion. They were not defined in the modern nationalistic sense. So you were from the Orthodox millet or the Armenian millet. And that Armenian meant the Armenian church, not the Armenian uh, nation in the modern sense. Uh, or you were in the, uh, the Jewish millet. Those were the big three, Orthodox, Armenians, and Jewish. And then in the course of the 19th century, with the rise of nationalism, the, the Orthodox and the Armenian millet actually kind of subdivided. There became like an Armenian Protestant millet and, a, and an Orthodox Bulgarian millet would break off from the Greek Orthodox millet. And in effect, that process continues today because I can guarantee you that the Ukrainian and Russian branches of the Orthodox Church are not getting along very well at the moment. And that even has effects in church organization. Uh, if you were Muslim under the Ottoman uh, under Ottoman rule, I would argue that it was live and let live throughout the en the empire as a whole. So uh, they didn't really try to change too much the way that Syrians approached Islam or Iraqis or Egyptians. So uh, the the way to to think about that is is their is their identity within uh, the Medhebs. In other words, the 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 legal traditions. So there's famously four main legal traditions, the, the Hanbalis, the Hanafis, the Shafi'is, and the Malikis. The Ottomans preferred by far the Hanafis. I mean, they were themselves Hanafi. But uh, the fact that Egypt, by the time the Ottomans conquered Egypt, was entirely Shafi'i, the Ottomans just let them continue to be Shafi'i. So to this day, Egypt is Shafi'i and Turkey is, is Hanafi'i. So uh, within Muslim communities, the Ottomans were more or less live and let live, with one key exception, and that is what they used to call the Kizilbash, or the redheads, what, which are today known as the Alevis in modern Turkey. And the, they were at certain points in Ottoman history a, an enemy of the state. So there was serious repression there. And you can think of it as um, an internal... Islamic struggle between the um, the Alevis or the proto-Alevis, the Kizilbash, and the state, and it's it's intimately tied up in the early modern rise of the division between Sunnis and Shi'is that you see today, and this is something to also describe, in that many people think of the Sunni-Shi'i split as going back to Ali ibn Abi Talib and Hassan and Hussein uh, versus Yazid, you know, the dictator Yazid, the Umayyad dictator Yazid. And that's true. There's nothing wrong with that interpretation except to say that there's uh, several centuries where that's going a certain way and, and then it, it changes again in the early 16th century with the rise of the Safavid Empire. Now, how does it change? Well, in a geographic sense, most important change is that the Safavids, in effect, transformed Iran 
from a 90% Shafi'i Sunni population and a 10% Shi'i population to the reverse. It took them 100 years to do it. But How'd they do it? Well, um, same way that Germany became mostly Protestant and, and that uh, the Ottomans became mostly Sunni. So, which is to say, uh, a combination of co-optation, a little bit of repression depending on who you're repressing, and otherwise encouragement and education. So it's all of those things. So they, to give you examples, for example, so on the Safavid side, when the Safavids first rose to power at the turn of the 16th century, they went after Sufi rivals, mystical order rivals, because the Safavids were themselves a Sufi order before they were an empire. And so they went after their rivals. Who were their rivals? The Helvetis. Um, I'm not sure if they went after Mevlevis, but they definitely went after Naqshbandis and Helvetis, who are, which are two very prominent orders to this day in Iraq and Turkey and Syria. So they went after them. They, they killed them wherever they could find them. So these, these folks became refugees, and we're talking the turn of the 16th century. And then they invited uh, 12 Vershii scholars from what is today Lebanon, and they emigrated to what is today Iran, and those Lebanese scholars played a key role in the um, articulation and education and spread of 12 or Shi'i thinking and, and education within Iran, and that's why Iran, from, um, from being 10%, 90% in, the, in 1500, in other words, 10% Shi'i and 90% Sunni, and it flipped fr so that by 1600, they were 90% Shi'i and 10% Sunni. So the Ottomans had as an enemy who? The Kizilbash, so okay. the, the redheads. And, and why did they have an issue with them? Well, the, the story there is, and there's different interpretations, but in a nutshell, the, the Kizilbash were, at the turn of the 16th century, loyal to the Safavid order. Mm. Uh, or if they were not actual members of the Safavid order, they liked the Safavid order. And they, were, they had a lot of complaints about the Ottoman ruling system. So we're talking Anatolia mostly, but it extends into the Balkans. These were Muslim Muslims who preferred the Safavid Sufi order and, and, the, and everything that that represented and did not like the Ottomans because the Ottomans at a certain point be, were sometimes quite repressive. Uh, so under, for example, Mehmet the Conqueror, um, so this is a bit before the rise of the Kizilbash as a major uh, as a major factor, so a little bit earlier, Mehmet the Conqueror uh, increased taxes and promoted from the Dev Shirmay, which I spoke about earlier. In other words, all of those conscripts from the Balkans were being uh, prioritized. They were being promoted. They were being made the elite at the expense of the Turkish, Kurdish, and Arab um, old elite, if you will. In other words, the ones who used to control those Beyliks. So they were Muslims for several hundred years prior to the 16th century. And the Ottomans were, in effect, prioritizing the new Muslims over the old Muslims, although they didn't phrase it that way. They didn't argue about Islam or who's a new Muslim and who's an older Muslim. That wasn't the way the debate was framed. It was simply framed as the Ottomans were repressing 
the old elite, and the old elite therefore liked the Safavids in many cases. And the Safavids are the, so the the history of the Safavids in a in a very in in a very brief sense is that they named themselves after um, a Sufi sheikh named Safiya Din. So Safiya Din, the followers are the Safawiya, which uh, in in English you would say Safavids. So Safiya Din died in I want to say 1334. It's right around the exact same time as Abu Sa'id uh, and the end of the Ilkhanid. So it's in that period where everything's being reconfigured after the, the uh, Mongol invasion. So Safiya Din was himself a Sunni, um, regular, orthodox, if you will, conservative, uh, normal, with scare quotes, um, Sufi sheikh, a mystical sheikh who was not really trying to upset the apple cart. And he was based in Erdbeel, which is today in northern Iran, very close to the Azerbaijani border. And in that entire region, uh, the order that Safiya Din started in the early 14th century got stronger and stronger and stronger um, and spread well beyond uh, that region of the southern Caucasus and northern Iran and spread into Anatolia, spread into Syria, spread throughout the Caucasus, and also became more extreme, so that the descendants of Safiya Din by the mid-15th century, and this, this happened under uh, Junaid and Haider, who were the ancestors of, or the, the father and the grandfather of Shah Ismail, who is the guy who led the Safavid revolution that converted this very powerful Sufi order into an empire. And that happened uh, starting in the late 1490s and extending into the second decade of the 16th century. So it, the way to think of that is as, as a revolution. It is a, a revolution driven by a Safavid order, a Sufi order, that has become, uh, you could call them extremist. And they, they had become 12 or Shi'i, so they were no longer like Safiya Din, who was not Shi'i. These Safavids, uh, and we're talking 200 years between them, right? So by the turn of the 16th century, they were an extremist Shi'i movement, and they came to power in Iran uh, in, a, in a country or in a region that at the time was 90% Sunni, and again, over a hundred years, they, they changed that. And they were the main enemy of the Ottomans throughout the 16th century into the 17th century. Did those events shape the modern Sunni-Shia dynamic? In a very big way, yes. Um, so I'll give you one example of why I say that. In, uh, so 10, 15 years ago, Iraq was an absolute basket case. You know, everybody's killing everybody else, and it's basically sectarian. It's Sunni-Shi'i violence in, in many ways. It's, it's better today, but it's still an issue. Um, the terms that they called each other were 16th century terms. So if you, were, if you hated Shi'is in Iraq, you would call them the Safawiya. You would, you would refer to them as the Safavids even though there's no connection between the Safavids of the year 1500 and the, the Iraqi Shi'is of 2010, they still called them the Safavids. On the flip side, 
if you hated the Sunnis, you referred to them as takfiri, which is a term perhaps you've heard of. Takfiri means uh, someone who calls someone else a heretic. In other words, the, the guys who make other people heretics. Like call them disbelievers. You're a disbeliever for mm -hmm. this, that. Okay. Yeah, from kafir and kufr. So they're, they're takfir. Takfir is the process of making someone else a kafir. And takfiri is the adjective. So they're, they're takfiri. So those are both references to the early 16th century. And that's why I think of the modern Sunni-Shi'i split as basically dating back to the 16th century, not dating back really to the um, 7th century. And, and other reasons why, why you could argue that would include the phenomenon of what is called Alid loyalism. So it's the idea that you're loyal to Ali, the fourth caliph, right? This was a big thing in the 15th century. It was an all-powerful idea that, that you're loyal to Ali. Well, did being loyal to Ali mean that you were Shi'i? Not really. You could just love Ali. And in today's world, that you still see that. Like, Ali ibn Abi Talib is, a, is an honored member of the first four Khulafa' uh, al-Rashidun, you know, the, the righteously guided caliphs. So he has great respect within Sunni Islamic communities, but he's also, in effect, the ancestor of Twelver Shiism. He's both at the same time. Well, that, that respect for Ali is what you could call Alid loyalism. In today's world, politically, it's no big deal. It's not like people are killing each other over how loyal they are to Ali. It's just kind of a historical thing of interest. But in the 15th century, that was a powerful political factor. No matter whether you were uh, using the square scare quotes, either Sunni or Shi'i, everybody loved Ali, and that mattered politically. Well, that whole political dynamic shifted in the 16th century with the rise of the Safavids. And the Safavid rise um, articulated a version of Twelver Shi'ism that is still the main version of it today. So they're the ancestors of today's Islamic Republic, uh, ancestor of today's, you know, Shi'i clerics in Iraq who are very powerful, the Hausa, as well as Hezbollah in Lebanon. They're all, in effect, uh, descendants of this change that happened in the 16th century. And it's true on the Sunni side as well. So that, um, well, I mean, it gets very complex very quickly, but basically the, the split, the modern Sunni-Shi'i split, where you think of it as two sides, that's a 16th century legacy more than it's a 7th century legacy. How did the Ottoman Empire help shape today's Sunni Islam? Okay, so the, the way I'll, I'll describe that is the idea of Ottoman Sunnism. Um, and that's that's a term in the literature that has that has come to pass though there is this idea that there is such a thing as Ottoman Sunni identity that's Ottoman Sunnism well what defines it? Uh, it and today you can think of it as Turkish Islam right so you know right here in suburban Maryland there's a mosque that's very prominent that the Turkish government you know contributed to and in effect it's it's kind of a sign sorry it's kind of a sign of modern Turkish Islam, in a way. That's one example, um, although they might not say that. So what defines this? Well, all right, first of all, it's, it's favoring the Hanafi legal tradition. 
So you, you prefer the Hanafis to the Shafis, Malikis, and Hanbalis. Secondly, similarly, it favors the Maturidi theological school, uh, as opposed to the Ashari or Mu'tazili or other theological schools that have popped up in the last 1500 years. So you like the Maturidis. And, and by the way, the Maturidis and the Hanafis are usually together and the Shafi'is and the Ashari's are usually together. It's, in other words, usually if you're Shafi'i, you're also Ashari, but not always. It doesn't have to be like that. It, it, it usually is like that. But if you're Ottoman Muslims, you're, you're, you're usually Hanafi, uh, Maturidi, uh, you like Sufi orders, so you're Sufi friendly, and you like having the state be involved in religion through those Sufi orders. So that's a political point, if you will. So it's very mystical friendly, and they, they think of themselves as tolerant. Now that, <laughs> that's, that's an opinion, a self-generated opinion, but it's, it's often accepted by people when they compare it to the, if you will, Saudi version. The Saudi version, or what is usually referred to as Wahhabism, is in effect a reaction to that Ottoman Islam. In, in some ways. So they didn't like the Ottoman version of Islam in the 18th century because they thought it had become corrupted. It had become too secular. It had become too mystical. And they, the, the Wahhabis in the 18th century saw that as going against the Prophet Muhammad's original message. Tell me a little bit about the rise of Wahhabism because Saudi Arabia is an absolute propaganda machine. We're trying to spread their version of Islam across the world. And sadly, it's a very unaccepting version of Islam, of anything they deem as other. Well, it starts with a, for lack of a better term, a preacher named uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, um, or a sheikh, you know. So he's, he's a very charismatic speaker. He's, he's not very scholarly. He's more of a, of a preacher type, you know, to use an American reference. And he's a firebrand preacher, and he's... he's He's a bit like the Puritans in what he believes. Um, and that fits the era. You know, it's 18th century. It's, it's in the middle of Arabia uh, from the region that Riyadh is today. Um, so the Nejd. And, uh, and what he believed is that the Ottomans uh, and any Sufi order and, and, and the Shi'is went against what the Prophet Muhammad originally believed. Uh, sent as the message. So they wanted to go back to strict monotheism, what they call the, the doctrine of Tawheed. Tawheed meaning, meaning unity. So unity of thought, unity of behavior, unity of belief in extreme monotheism, which is what they interpreted the Prophet Muhammad's original message as being. So once he articulated what that meant, it, 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 it eventually evolved into what we today think of as Wahhabi thinking. The father and brother of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab himself came out and warned against him. And is that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab or Muhammad ibn, ibn Saud? So it's Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Yeah. Well, one of the things that Wahhabi thinking has, emer has evolved into is the idea of privacy, which is to say you can do anything you want within your four walls but you, once you leave your four walls, you have to behave a certain way. 
And that's not seen as a controversy or a, a controversy or a contradiction. It's seen as just a way to be. And it's, it's a mixed bag. And if you think about it, if you think it through, they're not necessarily trying to control the way you really think. They're not necessarily trying to control the way you behave within your four walls. They're just trying to um, control the way people behave in public. Now, I, I also would agree that I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, it's, it's not my interpretation, uh, but you can sort of see what they're doing. Uh, and, and this is not, I mean, this is not against Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. It's, it's more or less what he came to preach is, is that at least in public, you have to be uh, a firm follower of our view of monotheism, hmm. uh, which goes back to the prophet's uh, original vision. I see. And, and did Wahhabism have an effect at all on Sunni-Shia uh, dynamics even today? Because it, it really is like the proxy war between Iran and Iraq uh, is what's Wahhabi versus Shia, basically. Now. It definitely affects politics today. If you want to take it back to the 18th century, the, the earliest uh, Wahhabis, and, and you can also think of them as the earliest Saudis, because it's true of both. So the story there is... The Saudis were traditionally the, 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 the military wing of the Wahhabi religious idea. That's kind of the way it's usually presented, although you can critique that at, at certain levels. In any case, the, the, Saudis, the Saudi Wahhabis were a huge problem for the Ottomans in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, and they were a problem in terms of controlling Arabia. Now, this is pre-oil, so at some level, the Ottomans are like, look, you can have your desert. We don't particularly care. Except that these, these uh, Saudi Wahhabis would raid um, cities that did matter. So most famously in 1803, they practically leveled Karbala, which is a major Shi'i um, shrine town in southern Iraq. And this was not a small um, raid. Like, they... They killed anywhere from three to 20,000 people in a town that only had 40 to 50,000. So it's like they killed every other person in that town, maybe. Um, it's not something I've looked into in depth, but it's, that's what I understand the case to be. So this is the most important uh, outbreak of violence in the early uh, 19th century in Iraq. So that led to all kinds of responses. Um, so one scholar has written an entire book describing how the Shi'i clerics of southern Iraq, Nejif Karbala, then um, tried to convert all of the tribes of southern Iraq to Shi'ism in order to, in, in effect, have a security belt against the Saudi Wahhabis. So it, it made southern Iraq more Shi'i than it used to be. Although I'm not sure I agree, but that's what the scholar argues. And the Wahhabis also raided Mecca and Medina. And you could see how massive a headache that would be for the Ottomans because the Ottomans were in charge of protecting the Hajj, you know, uh, in, in throughout, well, from 1517 when they conquered the region until 1923 when the empire ceased to exist. Um, throughout that entire period, they considered themselves the Khadim al-Haramain, uh, which they delegated largely to the Hashemites, but they were the, the, the sovereign power that was supposed to protect the Hajj. And, um, 
And the Wahhabis completely upset that by raiding Mecca and, and, and in the 18th and into the 19th century. So this is a major problem for the Ottomans. So how did they deal with it? Well, the, 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 the first big thing they did was send out Ibrahim Pasha, who was the son of Muhammad Ali Pasha, who is in effect the founder of modern Egypt. Um, and this is at the turn of the 19th century. So he went on a campaign I think it was around 1812. So from 1812 to 1818, or roughly around those years, there was an, an Ottoman-Egyptian campaign into what is today Saudi Arabia, and they totally destroyed them, uh, which I find interesting logistically, because how do you get an Egyptian army to go into the center of the desert and destroy the Wahhabis? To me, military in terms of military logistics, that must have been very impressive. When they did that, they captured the Saudi ruler at the time, uh, brought him to Constantinople, or Istanbul, where they hung him after a trial. And this is um, a major break to this day, I would think, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. You know, the, 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 the descendants of the Ottoman side and the descendants of the Saudi Wahhabi side they're not good friends, and this is part of the reason why they're not good friends. Now, one other thing to mention is that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was extremely anti-Shi'i. He, he, he hated the Shi'i um, because he saw that as elevating uh, the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad over the rest of us. So it's not egalitarian. It, they're, they're not better Muslims than the rest of us. So he completely rejected that. He also rejected Sufism, which is to say Islamic mysticism and all these Sufi orders. Uh, he was against uh, uh, shrine worship, like going to a shrine and, and worshiping at the shrine. So that's against all of the shrines you can think of that the Shi'is have, like Nejif, Karbala, um, uh, not Qum, um, well, the, the, the one in, in eastern Iran. Uh, Meshed. So they're, they're against shrines like you see in Meshed, uh, Nejif, Karbala, but also like the Shafi uh, shrine in Cairo or the Hanafi shrine in Baghdad. They're against all those. So they, they hated shrines, they hated Sufis, they hated Shi'is, and by extension, they hated the Ottoman, the Ottoman state. So this, this led to a, a massive collision between the Saudi Wahhabis and the Ottomans. We see that a lot today, where Muslims are butting heads and disagreeing, and some decide to call the other a kafir, or decide the other is not a Muslim anymore. That's, tak that's takfiri thinking. Right? Yeah. It's takfiri thinking. And there are certainly many political trends within the Islamic world that are, I, I guess for lack of a better term, takfiri. Yeah, it um, seems like what you're saying, yeah, this has a huge effect on what we're seeing today. Yeah, you can you can accuse the Taliban of being takfiri. You can accuse all sorts of different political movements in the Islamic world as being takfiri. Um, Al Qaeda, ISIS, you know, all those all those groups, um, they tend to reject those who don't agree with them. Yeah. One one other thing I can expand on a little bit is the role of Kemal Pasha Zadeh. Um, so let's discuss him a little bit. Um, Kemal Pasha Zadeh. Uh, who's also known as Ibn Kamal. There's this fascinating thing with him where if you study him from the Arabic tradition and from the Islamic studies tradition, he's Ibn Kamal. Uh, 
if you study him from the Turkish tradition and the secular Ottoman tradition, he's the historian Kemal Pashazadeh. But it's the same guy. He's, he's a religious scholar. He's a poet. He's, he's, he wrote a sex manual, among other things, which, by the way, was a thing back then. Like, you know, different, different scholars would do that. But, but he wrote one that was a bestseller. Like, you can still pick it up in the streets of Cairo uh, in, a, in a modern published edition. A manual of what? Like, how to have sex? More or less. It's called, uh, the, the literature is called the Bahname. The Bahname, you know, uh, literature. So he contributed to that. But the th- and it was in Arabic. It's not in Turkish. Was and his intention to show Muslims how to have halal Ottoman sex? sex? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what was or his intent? Uh, his intent might have just been to have a bestseller. It's hard to say. But, um, but, but it was a bestseller in that I, I bought as recently as 10 years ago in Cairo. I saw, it, I saw some guy selling it on a sidewalk. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> in a paperback and I'm like oh let me get one of those so I got one of those and it's you know it's good 200 pages uh, and he, and what he did was he continued the literature so this literature goes all the way back the Bahname literature and what what's in there well um, I didn't read it so I, I'm, I'm not sure all that's in it I wasn't really that interested but um, but I think it is things like you know good practice if you will um, so it's not necessarily the most exciting reading, but, but, but there is a literature on it, and there is some scholarship on it. Some folks have looked into it. It, it does exist. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah, so what about Ke- this guy? Yeah. So Kemal Pashazadeh, so more on him. He, he was from a, a military family, so his ancestors were Dev Shirmay uh, ancestors. He's, a, he's from a military family, which means he's from what used to be the Balkan Christian uh, society. Uh, but by his generation, they had already been Muslims for at least two or three generations. And he was going to go into the military. But at a certain point, he witnessed the great respect that a, an, uh, a Muslim cleric was receiving from all of those around him. So you can imagine that scenario, right, where like, uh, you, if you've ever seen a respected cleric come into a mosque and everybody's kind of like trying to kiss his hand or say hello or... You know, that he has an entourage. So Kamal Pasha Sande saw that and decided to become a scholar. And he must have been a very bright individual because he made that transition. He went into madrasa education, did all the standard things that you do, like memorize the Quran and study the Hadith. Is this like a definitive intention he had? Because we don't want to assume that the intention of a scholar being that he wanted fame. No, it's not so much that he wanted fame, it's that he saw the respect that was given to that, to that cleric and he wanted to be like that guy. Okay. Is this something he wrote? or? Well, it's something that is said about him. I'm not sure what the original source is for that, um, that story. I don't know whether it was said about him or whether he said it himself, uh, okay. but it is something that is, is, is often cited in his biography today. Interesting. Okay. So, so, he, so he went on to become this great scholar. Now, he, he wrote a 10-volume history of the Ottoman Empire up to his own ruler, which was Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1520s. And the reason it's 10 volumes is because Suleiman was the 10th Ottoman Sultan. So there's a volume for each Sultan. And he's, in effect, most famous for that history because what he did with that history is, in a, in a way, he defined the 
official Ottoman story about their past up until that point. And in terms of language, he kind of, he created a new Ottoman Turkish um, style of, of historical writing. So it's, and it's very, it's heavily influenced by Arabic and Persian as it would have to be. Uh, but it's it's in effect Turkifying uh, Arabic and Persian terms into Ottoman Turkish historical writing. He's not the first one to do it, but in in, a, in effect he was the first one to do it so well that everybody afterwards was heavily influenced by his historical writing. That's what he's most famous for. But in addition to that, he wrote that Bahname. He wrote he was a good poet. Um, and he wrote at least 200 um, what you can think of as Islamic treatises. And these Islamic treatises, as I've come to think, were there to show you how to be a good Ottoman Muslim. Like, that's what their point was. So what are some examples of those treatises? There's one where he talks about the, the reasons that Maturidi-ism is better than Ashadi-ism. So, you know, that theological school that I mentioned earlier. Well, I mean, okay, so what, 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 what I find hilarious all these hundreds of years later is that the difference between the Ashadis and the Maturidis is not that big a deal. And you can't really point to any example of Ashadis going out and killing Maturidis. Like, there, there's, it just never happened. So, I, that I'm aware of anyway. And... When, when he talks about the differences between them, it's like splitting atoms. Like, there just isn't that big a difference. And what I've come to think that means, in effect, is that the Maturidi doctrine, in a way, is, a, is, a, is, an, is an invention of the early modern Ottomans. Now, I said that to a Turkish colleague at a conference uh, about two years ago, and his response was, was hilarious actually it was this wonderful response he goes I, I actually think it's a creation of 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 the AKP in other words the the Erdogan's party mm. in other words his his counter to my idea that the Ottomans created is like no 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 we're, we're creating it now <laughs> why, why do you think there's throughout all of Islamic history I mean there doesn't seem to be difference in ideology like you're saying or theology there seems to be political differences well, uh, ideology and theology is political, ultimately. Okay. Uh, so they have these differences, and sometimes they're described today as theological disagreements, and sometimes they were violent. So one early Islamic example is the Mu'tazilis, and the Mu'tazilis were a very popular idea in the what century we're we talking about the early ninth century so we're talking um, high abbasid period yeah and um and at a certain point the abbasid court said you pretty much had to be mu'tazili or they were going to come after you mu'tazili are the ones that believe that the quran was written by god not spoken by god right well the 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 disagreement and and i actually um would need to check exactly which side they took because I don't remember off the top of my head but um, the disagreement was whether the Quran was created in time like it, it emerged in Muhammad's lifetime or whether the Quran was timeless 
Like it was always there, but God chose to speak to Muhammad in the seventh century in Arabic, and that's why the Quran emerged in the seventh century. Well, um, if you think that it emerged only in the seventh century to Muhammad, then it's not timeless. That has implications. Well, like, like, is it really that sacred? Is it really God's word? Uh, or is it just a historical document that emerged at that time? And again, I'm not sure what the Mutazili take on this was, but the winning viewpoint eventually, in effect, was that the Quran is timeless. It's always been there. It's God's own words. And it, God chose to unveil it to humanity through Arabic and through the Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century. Yeah, I see. 